0: Good evening, Mosaic family, welcome, welcome. As as you probably noticed, we've got a a little bit of ropes up. Uh, We're just trying to bring our our people in closer a little bit to make this place feel a little more uh, um, intimate. But hey, I wanna start the service tonight with a really fun story that just happened. We're all kind of cracking up about it on stage. Uh, If you look over here to stage right, I believe that's your left, you'll see that there's an electric guitar, (laughs) two electric guitars actually and a pedal board. Keith Gilbert, he was playing guitar tonight. Our, our new Sunday morning worship leader was just filling in. And as we were praying right before the service started, literally about 10 minutes ago, got a phone call and his wife is having a baby. So he took off and he's going to the hospital. Uh, so yeah, we're excited. We can be praying for him. It's his sixth child, I believe. Is that is that right, Russ? And I'm not joking, it's number six. Uh, so he's used to it. So when she knows, she knows. Uh, yeah, that being said, We're just excited and uh, we're gonna be down down a person on stage, but um, it doesn't change anything about why we're here and what we're doing. So church, would you stand as we worship King Jesus tonight and put our focus and attention on him? Sing to King Jesus, let's lift our voice. My Jesus,
1: my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. Our comfort, my comfort, my shelter tower of refuge and strength. Let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Let's lift our voice. Shout to the Lord, all the earth bless. start down
2: My name is Ashley Covert, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm the communications coordinator here, which means I have the honor of telling you all sorts of announcements and things. So if you weren't here last week and you're not sure what's going on with these ropes, we are a small congregation that lives in a big church, and so we're just wanting to feel close to each other. So get cozy, get comfy. If the ropes are like a hindrance to you, come chat with us, we'd love to talk about it, but that's what they're there for. Next, um, we talked about last week how we are kind of launching into community as this new year has turned. So we've got a few opportunities. Um, You have Discover coming up. If you've never taken Discover before, it's kind of an on-ramp to community. Um, That starts February the 4th, and then it's a really great way to kind of know the history of Fellowship and Mosaic and how we kind of came to be a part of it. Um, Also, if you are just looking to get into a small group, we've got a small group form that you can fill out, or if your group is starting to get kind of big and you're ready to multiply, there is a lead, a small group form, and you can fill that out too. Okay, Um, another community opportunity that we have for the ladies is we have our Women's New Year's Brunch coming up on the 29th of this month, so that's a Sunday. It's gonna be from 10 to noon in Lodge, and there's no registration for that. We would love for you to just show up and hear what we have going on for women in community this year. And then, if you guys saw when you came in, uh, in the foyer, our Spectre artists have produced a lot of really incredible artwork for our Esther and Daniel series. So that's in our foyer, but it's also in the Fellowship Bentonville and Fellowship Fayetteville foyer as well. So if you feel like field trips, you can make uh, your way to those campuses and see them in person, or we have them posted online as well. So you can follow the QR code, that'll take you to the news page and you can check those out. And then, last thing, um, a lot of our Mosaic families participated in the re-engage kind of info night that we did a few weeks back. The re-engage series is about to take off, so that is for our uh, couples who are wanting to kind of revitalize or strengthen um, their marriage, and so that's going to start the 22nd on Sunday, and so if you haven't registered for that, you can do that through that QR code, and that's all the announcements. So uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get back into worship, so... Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for bringing us all together. Father, thank you so much for the Gilberts and the new life that is about to be welcomed into this family, and uh, we pray safety for them. Um, God, as we continue in worship, help us rest and refocus uh, and turn our hearts and our minds to you. We love you. We pray, pray, amen. Mosaic, would you stand and let's sing together of our most high king.
3: He brought me in, oh, his love for me, oh, his love for me. Sing this out.
4: You know, John 1, 12 tells us that to all who received him, to all all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is such good news for us, is it not? Children of God. You know, my name is Russ. Um, I've been a part of the Fellowship Mosaic family for over two decades, a long, long time. And, uh, you know, when Kyle asked me to lead us through our our time of offering, you know, which practically is an opportunity to respond to God's generosity in our lives, I couldn't help but think about those those moments where God met me with his generosity in some of my deepest moments of need. You know, perhaps one of the most profound examples of that was when my son Stephen was seven weeks old. And he was critically ill and i remember like it was yesterday um, asking my doctor my friend who was closer than a brother dan whedon if my son was going to live and he just hugged me and i, and I remember never having a moment where I needed my heavenly father more than when I saw that helicopter leave and fly off with my son to Children's Hospital in Little Rock. And when we arrived, the head of the pediatric ICU, he, he told me that my, my son had a, a life-threatening case of RSV. And uh, there are so many so many ways that God revealed his heart and showed himself to us. So many supernatural things that he did and time doesn't permit going there. But from a practical standpoint, the least of our concerns was where we were gonna stay that night, right? But but God knew, God knew. Jim Cooper from Fellowship Bible Church, he just happened to be there in, in Little Rock on business. And he just happened to find out what was going on with our family, and he insisted that night that we take his hotel room. And literally the next day, that same head of pediatric ICU, Steve Snyder, he just shared with us that God is leading us to give you some place to stay. At an act of obedience, he was giving his home to perfect strangers, and to make matters more incredible, he wasn't even going to be there. He was going out of town on vacation. And, and when we, he came back with his family, literally the next day, Susan Von Grimp from Fellowship walked into the ICU and said, you know, my husband, Jim, he has a legislative apartment that we would, it's just a couple of blocks away from the hospital and we would like you to use that for your family. And there was never one moment, never one moment where our heads didn't have a place to find rest because of the generosity of God expressed through his people. And it changed our life. It changed the way that we viewed our home. And we began praying, asking God, would you use our home to express your heart to express generosity, your heart for generosity. And we began hosting cell groups of 30 to 60 students and leaders. And I got to tell you, man, it was wild. We would spend time just praying, God, just please let stuff stay on the walls. It would be great. You know, and we would have be been in our bedroom and we'd hear this big boom, you know, and, and that was our cue to pray. And, and, and literally, literally to this day, To this day, we find these little green army men that they put all over our house in the most unusual and really hard to get to places still to this day. But I gotta tell you, the crowning moment was when as an act of worship, we were saying, God, please use our home to express your generosity. And we had the opportunity to offer our home to a group of leaders when we were going to be out of town just as was done for us and it changed us and so i'd ask you where have you seen the generosity of god in your world and your life and how is it changing you so i want to invite you to read this familiar prayer just you and the lord take time to process it with him And I just invite you to remember what he has done.
5: you let these words be a prayer from your heart tonight.
3: treasures woven by his
1: love
3: his careful
1: One more time again. All he's done. He dives.
5: Hi, Mosaic. My name is Laura, and I have the joy of getting to serve with our worship team here at Mosaic uh, alongside my husband, who's doing live stream tonight, and some of my kids that are leading worship in other places on campus. Um, And my husband and I as well lead a community group in Bentonville. So I um, am grateful to get to read the word of the Lord to you tonight. This is from Esther 4. Esther 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs and assigned to attend to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord.
6: Good evening. Good to see you. My name is Colin. I serve with our community team and occasionally get to teach the word of God. And uh, this is our second week in a series on Esther. Have you enjoyed it so far? Okay, beautiful. Hey, and as we move ropes together, I'm really excited because I like a little bit of conversation when we do this. So let's test something out real quick. How are you? Hey, come on now. Have you enjoyed our time in Esther? Eh, good. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so glad you're here. Go. Come on. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Hey, that's, that's what we're doing here. This isn't meant to be a lecture. We're engaging in God's word together. You have these? Let's see them. Anybody? Digital. I'm a digital guy, but I grabbed one. Um, hey, this is meant to equip you not only to know God's word, but to teach it to others. So it's kind of cool if you go to page 25, you can pick one of these up in the foyer if you don't have it. Page 25, you'll see week two, and there's a space for notes. Um, not because I'm not great of a teacher, more so because it's so important that you as a follower of Jesus know how to communicate truth to others. So I'd encourage you, grab a pen, take, jot down some thoughts tonight with the goal and intention of leaving this time to go and teach someone else. Uh, Esther's a weird book. My first time engaging it, uh, I was eight years, maybe a little younger, about seven, and it was on VeggieTales. Anybody else? Oh. So it, Esther now is, is, is as, even as Nick talked about last week, is the festival and holiday of Purim, which is, there's, there's laughter, and there's, uh, and as they read the story, they interact, and they boo Haman out loud, and there's costumes, and it's, it's fun and lively. It's a it's comedic tragedy. I love comedies. Some of my favorite shows are actually where you have hilarious circumstances that it just seems like the main characters cannot pull it together, right? We love shows like that. And so it is with Esther. So even as we approach this a little bit tonight, I want you to have a framework or a lens to come to this text with. Um, because as we'll see last week, Nick did a brilliant job of setting us up on this book, and he talked through a couple of different things happening from Old Testament all the way up till Esther. But one thing in particular is that Esther is a story about God's providence. Now, as we just read the book of Esther, did you hear God, Jesus, faithful followers, Israel, any of that one time? No. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, however. Esther fits within a beautiful story known as the grand story of God interacting and redeeming this world. And so, uh, as we approach Esther, I love the way Karen Jobe, she got a doctorate, so if you don't trust me, trust her. God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. This is what uh, one monk named Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God. From doing dishes to times in prayer to to changing a child's diaper all the way to coming to a church service. Every part of the human experience, God is present, God is active. And even though he's not, it doesn't seem like he's present in the book of Esther as we continue. Our hope in this time is that you would see Esther's a story about God's gracious and loving hand and his concern for not just the faithful, like we'll see in Daniel here in a few weeks, but also with those who are unfaithful. See, um, what I want to do tonight is actually um, move through an eye exam with you. You ever had an eye exam before? Uh, they, I go to Parenti Morris just down the road, they do a great job. But I always, when I was about seventh grade, Spider Man had come out in theaters. And I saw it, and you know what I thought? I want some glasses. I wanna be Peter Parker. And so Heidi Franz can attest to this. I, I, I had glasses, she was my choir teacher in middle school. One day I didn't have glasses, the next day I did. Um, I lied. Like I went into my eye exam, and I was like, it was totally like a K, and I was like, I think it's like a, was that a J? And they were like, okay, here's a prescription. And Um, What ended up happening is I started wearing these glasses as a kid, and they started hurting my eyes. Also, I was going for Peter Parker, and I had a weird little bowl cut, and everybody said you look like Harry Potter. (laughs) I was like, I'm done with these. Put them away. Fast forward a few years. um, I'm actually in this room, and I'm trying to read the print back there on a worship set one night, and I have this migraine that's just intensifying, and it turns out I actually I need some glasses. As I get older, my eyes are as well, and so I went back and and had an actual eye exam, and turns out I I needed them the whole time. Here's my fear, that you would approach the book of Esther like I did in seventh grade. You actually do need glasses, but you're approaching it from a way that you're actually, you're kinda lying on the eye exam. And, And as we dive into Esther, we're gonna look at the cast here in a moment, but what I wanna do is give you three different lenses of how we are to read biblical narrative. Now, does anybody know how much of your Bible falls into the genre of narrative? Anyone? 40%, write it down, teach someone else. 40% of the, the scriptures are written in the genre known as narrative. So there's poetry and there's wisdom and there's epistles and there's apocalyptic like we'll get in Daniel and then you have Narrative Problem, if I try to read and interpret narrative, like I try to read and interpret, let's say, an epistle, how's that gonna pan out for me in life? Probably not too good, yeah? An epistle's trying to say this is a letter written to these people and here's what you're to do. And that's not necessarily the goal of a biblical narrative. And within, as we approach biblical narrative, there's, there's three movements that we're just gonna walk together tonight. And I hope you will memorize them and any time you come to a narrative of the scripture from Abraham to Isaac, even in Daniel when we hear narrative, and particularly within Esther or books like Jonah, that you'll just remember this lens. It's, it's very simple. The first one is a historical context, history. That there is a historical movement that the author of this book is writing to a specific people at a specific time, and it is not 2023 to you and me. As Robert Cupp, one of our founding pastors here, says, the scriptures are not written to you, but they are written for you. There's things we can glean. And so first is the historical. Next is going to be literary. Uh, where's Josh Pinky? Josh, throw up a hand so everyone can see. Hey, what did you get your uh, grad school degree in? Undergrad, sorry. English. Hey, Josh, let's say for me, if I'm trying to, to approach literature, let's say if I go to a poem and I take that poem to be very literal, how am I gonna do? Not great. Why? <laughs> it's a poem. This is literature. This is an author writing literature. There's a literary structure. There's a plot. There's characters. There's, there's things, the author, that you're gonna watch even through Esther. We have this chiasm where, one event happens and it's mirrored later. And if you go to Esther going like, I kind of want to see what this has to say about me in my day, I think you're about to replay VeggieTales and it's gonna end up very painful for a seven-year-old in the future. Thirdly, and most importantly, is the theological lens. And so that's all we're gonna do tonight, what, we'll, what we can know about God. And so first, let's, let's put on our literary lens together. And look at the cast of Esther. Now just notice, uh, real fast, Xerxes, an alcoholic, indecisive king demanding obedience. You have Vashti, a uh, former queen of Persia, deposed. She's actually put aside. Xerxes is throwing a party with all his friends and he wants Vashti to come in and uh, cover your ears, children. He wants her to come in so that he can put her beauty on display, which in ancient Persia is not a great thing for a queen. And so she says, mm-mm. And he says, I'm gonna kill her. And his, his people come together as consultants and they say, don't kill her. Let's remove her and then we'll have someone else so that all the men in, in, in our kingdom know that they are the master of their wives. Esther, a young Jewish orphan woman, uh, chosen to be the queen of Persia. We don't know exactly the age she is at this time, but, but she's young. If you're looking for a sad read, do some uh, ancient Persian practices in the harem. Um, not the bright shining queen that I was told about in Veggie Tales. Mordecai, a Jewish man and cousin, that was a joke, thanks for laughing. Mordecai, a Jewish man, cousin, and adoptive father of Esther, and then Haman, the short-fused, wealthy, manipulative politician plotting genocide. And here's what, here's what we can do with our literary context, with our, this lens on. Um, there's a, a way we would take the lens off and it's called pious bias, a pious bias. One way that we could really butcher what the author's trying to do here is we could walk into this and assume that all of these people are either to be he- heroes or, or villains. Um, sometimes we get in big trouble when we, we come to stories in the Old Testament like with Abraham and we put him on display as this incredible, godly, faithful, amazing leader and man. And then we begin to actually miss out on the fact that, wow, he made some really, really poor choices, right? So if we start to elevate, look at Esther and Mordecai and how amazing and awesome they are and look how bad Haman and Xerxes and their their friends are. We actually begin to lose out on what the author's trying to teach us. We're not trying to approach these characters with a pious bias that these are all really faithful people or unfaithful people. Because what tends to happen in that is we'll do one of two things. One, we'll deify some or we'll demonize others, dehumanize others. And so what I'd hope you do as you approach these characters is that you would realize these are broken people in a broken world. Now, we're not necessarily looking at Esther and Mordecai for how we should handle grief or racism or genocide I mean, just take a look at, at some of the topics you see within this literary structure. Where well, you're gonna have substance abuse, vanity of wealth, marital conflicts, dysfunctional relationships, like all of these things are within that story. And when we begin to mess around with the characters in a way the author didn't intend, we actually miss out on this. Broken people in a broken world. Next, so we have a literary context, this first line. There's a plot, there's characters, the the author is trying to communicate something and we don't necessarily need to jump the gun and read ourselves into it. Secondly, is the historical, our historical lens, that this narrative is written within the greater narrative of the scriptures. It's interesting, in in church history, there's a lot of debate around this book. Like even up to its earliest uh, development within the, the church, there's actually a whole other version of Esther that was added later, and it was added in with all of these Christianese lingo of how this person is that, and this person does this, and it's interesting to read, but as you get to the Reformation and all these things begin to happen with the text, they go, let's actually go back to the oldest text, and it begins to omit a lot of things that were actually added later, and that's what we have tonight in the 10 chapters of the book we have. But um, in Esther, we're told a few things. One is that we have the exile and return. Are you familiar with this in the Old Testament? If you haven't taken panorama of the Bible here at Fellowship, it's a great class. These these are two of our movements. And within the first movement, we'll we'll come back to it uh, later when we get to Daniel. But you have Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Daniel. All these are faithful followers of God, Israelites living in exile, living in the the destruction and the chaos of Babylon. And then right there around the 515, something significant happens. Babylon is destroyed and taken over and the Jews are given this opportunity to return, to go home, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild what God was doing and is doing. And what you see is there's actually many, many Jews who don't go. They don't return. They're actually disobedient to the Torah and they stay where they are. And it's in that context that you have really faithful followers of God like Ezra and Nehemiah who are leading people back to Jerusalem to rebuild. This is where Second Temple Judaism starts, the the Judaism of Jesus' day. It it happened here. But then you have many, many, many who who didn't return. And we're not told why they didn't return. Um, We're not told why Esther and Mordecai Aren't back helping rebuild Jerusalem to have the kingdom of God come back and be ushered in. But two speculations, just my speculation. One, Jeremiah wrote during the exile that God's people would forget him, but they would continue. They would begin to worship foreign gods and they would forget the God who has been, as we just sang, faithful to them. I think Esther and Mordecai, maybe they've forgotten. Secondly, Esther's grown up in Persia. Like, it's all she's known. She's not trying to get back to Jerusalem to do anything. Like, she was living in exile. That's all she's known. And and similarly, for for Mordecai, I mean, he's been here for years. Up to this point, by the time that that Esther becomes queen, the temple's been restored for 30 years. They've had 50 years to get to go back and be obedient to God and return to Jerusalem, but, but they haven't. And I speculate, maybe that's because it's just easier over here. Why would I move away from what I know to go do something to a God I, I don't really know? And so they're, they're staying. So what we don't wanna do is, again, knowing the historical context, I don't wanna make these, these characters something that the author's not trying to make them. You follow me? So we have a, the literary lens, we have the historical lens. And with those two in mind, let, let's look now for uh, what we can find that the author's trying to communicate. First, notice Mordecai's grief there. C.S. Lewis, once talking about grief, said that no one ever told me that grief feels so much like fear. And there's power in this story right here because some of us are in the process of grieving right now. Some of us just got done with holidays without the loved one and it was hard and it was heavy. And we can actually kind of resonate with this character here. But but notice, Mordecai is grieving. Well, why is he grieving? Well, if you go back to the chapter just before from last week, this guy named Haman said to Mordecai, you're gonna bow down and worship me like a god. And Haman said, no. This text does not say that, that Mordecai did this because he was faithful to worshiping God. It also doesn't say that he did it because he was prideful and hated Haman. The text leaves it open for us. But regardless, we know that Mordecai did not bow to this this oppressive leader named Haman. And now Haman is written out of edict. He went to Xerxes and said, hey, let's kill not just Mordecai, but all of his people, just to prove a point that people are going to bow to us powerful leaders. So actually, if you were to just draw out of the text what's there, um, this is kind of Mordecai's fault. And I'm not saying he was right or that he was wrong. I'm, I'm saying he was given the opportunity to bow to a leader, he didn't, and now that leader is going to kill him and all the Jews in Susa. And so he's grieving, and, and, and he, uh, how he grieves is, is also important. So anytime you see sackcloth and ashes and, and public loud wailing, again, it doesn't tell us that there was wailing and crying out to Yahweh, to God. Author omits that. Rather, what we see is Mordecai is doing what Jews have always done throughout the Old Testament to grieve and to show their lament and frustration in a hard situation. Um, we have similar things in our culture, it's just not as loud or public. We wear black to a funeral, correct? And typically in our culture, it's moments of silence. But Mordecai, following Jews' custom, clothes himself in sackcloth, ashes, and hits the streets and begins just to cry and weep bitterly. This is a man in pain. And all the other Jews in Susa begin to hear about Haman's plot to kill them and they join in. And so Esther gets word of this and she says, I'm gonna take care of my cousin and my adoptive father and sends him some clothes and says, hey bud, Uh, what's she doing out there? (laughs) She's, again, in her harem, which is not the greatest place to be in the Persian Empire, but she's there and can't necessarily leave or go anywhere, and she's catching word that your cousin's freaking out, and so she sends this guy named Hathak. Say Hathak, or if you're deep South Alabama like me, it's Hathak. Uh, Mordecai told him, uh, this is a really bad game of telephone. You ever played the game Telephone? If, if you wanna to Jesus and read into this text, they needed some iPhones back then because good Lord, poor Hathik is gonna do some running. Mordecai told him, hey, everything that happened to me, and then he told him the exact amount because Haman has some money involved because, again, corrupt politician and ha- has promised to pay to the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And then he gives a copy of this text that's been given out through all of Susa to be sent back to Esther, And to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead for her people. There was someone else who uh, didn't bow down before a royal figure recently. And here he says, rather than go into Haman and say, hey, let's work this thing out. You're right, I'm sorry. He says, Esther, you're our only hope. You gotta do this. Um, a problem, which Esther explains in the verses following. She says, one, her identity. Right now, other than Hathach and Mordecai, no one else in the Persian kingdom knows that Esther's a, a Jew. So Esther might be entertaining here. I could be cool. Like, I could be clear. Two, um, is her marriage. I don't know if you've read chapters one through three yet. Is Xerxes the most kind, benevolent, loving husband? No. Not at all. I mean, look what happened to the last queen and that was when he summoned her and she said no. So imagine how bad it is if she goes in there when she's not summoned. And maybe the king's had a little too much and he's just not in a good mood. And thirdly, she's being asked to break the law because she explains no one goes to the king without being called. And when you don't, when you don't get called and you go to this king unless he sends that scepter your way, you are done. You're done. And so Esther sends poor Hathik. Everybody say poor Hathik. And he, she sends him back and explains this to Mordecai. And Mordecai says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That might be something good to note in this story. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In this long conversation between Mordecai and Esther's, poor Hasek, everybody say poor Hasek. He goes right on back into those quarters. I mean, again, this guy's probably just running miles. What a marathoner. Also a eunuch. If You don't know what that means. Talk to mom and dad later. Tell everyone to fast for me. Um, Esther says, okay, I'm gonna do it. I will do it. Esther sent this reply, poor Hathic, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Now, same as sackcloth and ashes, this is just public grieving. Fasting was also accompanied. Notice there's no, the author omits prayer. There's fasting. It does not explicitly say that this is a fast before God. Fasting can be one of two things. One, it can just be a public way to display I'm grieving or two, it can be a sign and symbol of I am repentance, I'm repenting from my sin, and I'm putting my dependence on the one who can fulfill. The author doesn't, doesn't tell us which one it is. But Esther does make a courageous choice, and I think we need to note that she's making a courageous choice. I mean, this is a brave woman, y'all, right? Like, she is, is putting her life on the line, stepping into that, to the king's chambers once again, After 30 days of not being invited, I mean, she has no clue what's gonna happen, but she says, okay, if I perish, I perish. I'll do it. And uh, there you have it, Esther 4. Let's go. (laughs) We're done. Let's sing a song and get out of here. Um, We've done two. We did the historical, right? This is a specific time in Israel's history. We did the literary, a lot of good literature in here, right? Um, Now, I think one thing you could do here is say, so what principles can I draw from this, right? And so uh, you could glean the need for iPhones in ancient Persia. Everybody say, poor Hathik. Uh, The need for relationships amidst crisis and in grief, the need for community to join you in that. That's, That's there, it's in the text. Partnership, good partnership between men and women. We could use some of that in our world. The call to be brave and courageous. It's there, like she did it. Willingness to lay down your life for the good of others. That's, that sounds pretty Christian. Realizing moments to step up and take action in our lives. All really great principles, right? Problem, the, the vision's not done on, on the exam here because we need to actually take it to the the final piece of reading, biblical narrative, which is what is the theological principle? Not just how do I apply this in my life, what does this reveal to me about the triune God? And I think when you do that, you come to something like this. I love Elise Fitzpatrick, she's an author, a counselor, a Bible nerd, she says this. It's natural to read Esther as a morality tale about cousins who stand in the gap to save a nation. It's natural, it's, it's how we read stories. But as a consequence, women may be told, be compliant and brave like Esther. How we feel about that, ladies? Men are encouraged, be faithful and wise like Mordecai. You mean the, the cousin who just threw his like, adopted daughter to the king? We're all admonished, don't be proud like Haman or you might end up in the gallows. But is Esther fundamentally a morality tale about how we should stand tall in the midst of our earthly captivity or could Esther be telling us something else? And when we actually put that final lens on of what is the theological principle we can draw here, I think we begin to see some things. Primarily, Esther is a story within the grand story of 66 books about God which means, first and foremost, Esther should remind us of a better story. Now, when we treat the narrative of Esther, a comedic tragedy, it, it, it begins to remind us of, of a better story because this isn't the end. And, and then when you start to try and draw that principle out, what is this teaching me about God? Well, well one, I, I see a royal person a person of royalty who's been placed in a unique and specific position. And this person of royalty, they're not only being asked to, but they are willingly going to lay down their life for others. And they're not only willing to lay down their life for others, this person in royalty is going to offer relief and deliverance for a group of people. Now, look at that sentence with me just for a second, the better story, a more beautiful story. In fact, that the New Testament would take that, those themes and call this story the good news. Now, I don't hold to a view, and you are welcome to disagree with me, that Esther is a type of Christ, it's called typology. I do think they are in the Old Testament, I'm not convinced Esther is one of them, or that Mordecai is. Because again, of the literary structure, and, and we can have coffee about it, there's different views on that. However, I do absolutely see some parallels between this story and the greater story. Because when I take that theological lens of what is this book teaching me, this, this narrative, this story teaching me about God, it reminds me of a royal person. Alpha, omega, beginning, and end, king of heaven and earth, who comes not only willingly, but but planning to. To come, uh, not so he could keep his own life, but so that he could give it. And, And not just so he can keep the life of his friends, but so that he can die for his enemies so that he could bring salvation and redemption in a broken world with broken people, I like cast the cast of Esther. You following me? Paul would put it like this. See, where Mordecai said, hey, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews, it's gonna come from somewhere else. And Paul fills in that somewhere else. Hey, I encourage you, um, keep reading Esther. It goes, it goes, it goes, pretty disgustingly. Um, She gets into the room. I'm just gonna spoil next week and all the other weeks. She gets in there. The king says, I have favor on you. They kill Haman, so they actually kill the guy the way that he was gonna kill Mordecai. Haman gets killed, and then that's not enough. Mordecai and uh, Esther decide, hey, we have a way. Actually, let's kill all Haman's friends, and the violence and the vengeance continues. That's why I have an issue with Esther as a type of Christ, personally. Notice what Paul says, that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A historical moment a literary structure, a literary view, and then a theological principle. And I think the principle we can draw out of Esther chapter 4 is this that God is good. He, he is good, and He does good. May we not attribute evil to the hand of a good and gracious God. And He's faithful to His promises, He's faithful. Every time, his steadfast love and faithfulness continues, even when ours doesn't. And in the moments of crisis and chaos, this is the good God who is faithful who enters in to continue to restore and to make all things new. That The king, the better king, the biblical story ends with Jesus sitting on his throne and he says, behold, I'm doing something in your day. I am making all
2: things new
6: and uh, I I don't know what crisis you're in tonight maybe it's small maybe it's work is a hassle and I'm not enjoying it maybe it's big and and I don't know if the marriage is gonna make it (laughs) but what I do know is that God is good and he's faithful and as we just sang a moment ago to the end and even in those moments of the dark night of the soul, this is the God who enters into suffering and chaos of this world. Not so he can get vengeance on his enemies, but so they can send love to them. And there's a prayer, we, we like to pray. I learned it first from Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights and it's become one I have to pray pretty regularly in my crises. And it's known as a serenity prayer. And I encourage you, in this time and in this moment, just take a few times, few seconds with our good God to slow down, to pray this prayer slowly, and then we'll respond and sing in and get out there to love Northwest Arkansas and the world. Would you pray with me?
1: you are with me in this moment you have led me to this place
0: though the darkness around me closes I will hold
1: to hold And tell it to Your grace, this is why we sing. Cause Your love.
0: chorus of this song with me. Cause great is thy
1: faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by
0: you're so worthy of our of love, Father. Lord, thank you for your presence, God, and for your faithfulness in our life, Lord. As we look back, we know that you, um, Lord, love us not because of what we do, but because you're a God who pursues us. You're a God who can't help but love his people. So thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your name, amen. Church, what a great night of worship. Um, If you need prayer, we'll have our prayer team around front. And we really mean that. This isn't just a a throw off of like, okay, this is another thing we do. We want to pray for you as a church. So come meet our staff um, and get connected. We'll have our staff out in the foyer as well if you want to join a community group or just get involved. Uh, Church, let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And our people said,